Hello and welcome to episode three of the Wilder podcast. I am Tom and this is Chloe. Hi everybody. If this is the first Wilder podcast that you are listening to, then you're coming in at episode three of the three foundation episodes. I really recommend going back to episode one, which gives you the financial understanding of what we are trying to achieve. Uh, Chloe and Tom here with podcast and with the Grange Project, which is our rewilding project. And then follow the episodes through to episode two and three, which gives you the foundational understanding of the science and the decisions why we're making the changes that we are. And so in episode two, we interviewed Mark Linus, who gave us a great foundational understanding of climate science. And we had a bit of a debate about individual versus collective action. Mm-hmm. And this one's all about the security challenges that, that, that arise because of climate change. And the fact is going to happen. And, the, and we explore the so what's associated with climate change. So Yes, it's going to increase in temperature, but what's what's the so what associated with that? Well, it's desertification in certain areas. Well, what's the so what of that? Well, it's mass migration. Well, what's the so what of that? Well, it's instability around the localized countries around the desertification. Well, so what's the so what of that? Well, it's increased risk of war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of cool topics that I, I want to really dig into. I, I wish you guys could feel Tom's passion and enthusiasm for this subject because it's like eking out of him. And this is right up his street talking about kind of security, military and... Yeah, the so what? What does this really mean to us? It's so important, and then people don't talk about it. They because it because it's not science. You know, they can't quantifiably prove anything necessarily. But it is it's geopolitical instability, and it's all it's all part of this topic. With the guests, it, we are very much honoured to have Lieutenant General uh, Richard Nugie on to talk. But we'll talk about more about him and introduce him at the end of the talk. Yeah. So uh, I guess the other function of this. I, this is a podcast word I'm new to, top, the top of the episode, is that we're going to interview Tom a little bit about some of his background and what's led him to be in this position of, well, co-founder of The Grange Project and host on the Wilder podcast. Mm-hmm. So what do you think has been significant for you in your journey here? Oh, my goodness. I don't think my, my journey is, is the average climate evangelist journey. You know, I think if I would define myself, if I was going to kind of create a Twitter handle for myself or a name, I'd call myself the reluctant eco-warrior because it isn't my natural habitat, so to speak. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when I was growing up, it's all about, was, for me, it was, was always the military. I'm dyslexic and therefore I, I left school, struggled at school and left school at 16. Uh, and the army really was the best place for me. I joined at 16 and I went to the Army Foundation College. And that took a person lacking in personal confidence to being extremely confident and believing that I can do a lot more in my life. And that's then taking me through my life through to becoming an army officer, to going on operations, and then onto my kind of career of entrepreneurialism. And again, none of the, and, you know, my, my businesses were all about technology, social media, digital marketing, uh, virtual reality and training. So nothing particularly to do with the environment. I like spending time outside. I like going for runs and camping out, but not never uh, really thinking about the impacts of climate or biodiversity loss other than noticing that my windscreen was getting fewer bugs splattered on it so i guess what sparked your interest then in some of these subjects um again i think we covered it you know in episode one it was the birth of our first child rose um i'm also going to shout out to william because i think he you know eleanor gets mentioned who's our third rose gets mentioned the first i think william poor william is going to be left in the middle so i think shout out to william as well here but that you know really starting to go think about the world we're going to leave them and i feel it very very keenly that i should do everything i can to help protect them from risks going forward and so then we have the opportunity and we're privileged position to stop to look at the science look at the evidence talk to each other be like-minded i think which is great 
bounce the ideas off of each other and go, actually, is this something we should be worried about? And I think those, those are aspects of your personality that perhaps listeners should be aware of is your kind of relationship to risk and your kind of ability to assess and understand that. And also kind of your logical thinking. I think both of those, from my perspective, have been quite influential for you in this journey. Yeah, well, one of us has to be. The other, the other one kind of leaves keys indoors and unlocks cars. <laughs> so, you know, common theme is balance in life. And I think that's it. So that was, that was the drive. And um, But I'm also the kind of person, if I see something that's wrong, or doesn't work or is broken then i have to fix it otherwise i get extremely frustrated yeah i would say you have a very strong value set and a very strong sense of kind of right or wrong and, and, and justice which i think have also been contributors to where we are now mm. so with this episode why did it feel particularly important for you to have the general with us today i love that you refer to him as the general i'm learning well done because i believe this is this is going to be very flippant and i, I please uh, i do apologize if it offends anyone but I think if we cared enough about the polar bears or the ice caps or the specific butterfly, then we would have made the changes by now when it comes to climate emergency, rewilding, biodiversity loss, etc. So I, so I really believe that we should be talking about the actual direct impacts. I think that we're going to first uh, to, to really keenly feel, and and especially in in the UK, where we feel quite isolated from climate change and security and protecting our families is very important to everybody so i just think that this is a great episode to get out up front and i think it's also a topic that people tend to gloss over or avoid in the debate yeah i find it absolutely fascinating as someone that hasn't thought so much about some of the kind of security challenges that might be associated with climate change i thought yeah rich did an absolutely inspirational job of explaining and talking through his report and the impact that it's had So without further ado, let's go into the interview. This man deserves a 10-minute introduction, uh, but we just don't have that on the podcast. But General Richard Nugi had a very long and obviously impressive career in the military, has recently retired, but has now gone back into kind of fighting for building advocacy around the security challenges nationally and internationally to do with climate change. Here he is. General Richard Nugi, welcome to the Wilder podcast. Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on. For the background, for the listeners, Richard has kindly offered to come onto the podcast and give a really important side of my journey and my move towards understanding climate change, which is the actual security challenges associated with climate change. So people that know the Grange Project well will know that a lot of our episodes and our blogs are all about the so what. It's not just good enough saying climate change is happening and this is the science. We've got to ask the next question, which is the so what, which is a very military thing to say. It's it's the so what, but then it's not just the so what, it's the so what to the so what, then to the so what, to really dig down to it. So Richard, welcome. And in keeping with our podcast and the tradition, introduce yourself and explain how you've managed to get to being the lead for the climate security challenges within the UK. Well, <laughs> that's an opener, isn't it? Thanks, Tom. So Richard Nugy, I'm obviously a soldier and finished up doing four years of sitting on the Defence Executive Board. And that board ran defence. It was chaired by the Permanent Secretary and the Chief Defence Staff. And in those four years, the words climate change was not mentioned once and sustainability was not mentioned once. So I actually said to both the chairs that I thought this was wrong and I would do a study for them on climate change and sustainability as relates to the military. So what are the implications of climate change on 
a military. And after some persuasion, they allowed me to do the, the report, which was eventually delivered in December 2020 and was created by one person as the best report they'd ever seen come out of government, uh, which slightly surprised me. <laughs> Does it? Well, shows the quality of the rest of government, but I shouldn't say that. And uh, went to the Prime Minister, apparently, and was accepted almost completely. And a, a uh, sort of response to my report was written, which is public, open published. So from that, I took sort of the view that there are three ways that climate change affects the military and affects defence. And this is absolutely not unique to the UK. The first is that actually the environment around us is changing, whether we like it or not, whether we think that it is going to affect us or not, it is changing. It's changing in that there are parts of the world where resources, particularly water and food, and, and one leads to the other, a scarcity of water usually destroys crops and, and food, therefore the ability to grow and the ability to keep livestock. That That is becoming more difficult in parts of the world. That inevitably means that farmers and people who rely, nomadic uh, nomadic peoples who rely on moving livestock and so on, are finding it increasingly difficult to survive in that environment and therefore move. So you've got just in that, very short sort of snippet three things that are happening you've got you've got land that is becoming inaccessible to live on and it may just be too hot to live on you've got movement of people a movement of people who really have uh, have nothing absolutely nothing and therefore become immediately susceptible to non-state actors which is a sort of technical term for people like isis boko haram al-shabaab who actively recruit farmers who've lost everything into their terrorist organization. And so you can see that already there is a potential for greater conflict, a potential for greater inequality as a result of climate change. How does that affect us as a military? Well, it affects our allies, potentially. Uh, you look at uh, some of the countries that we have very strong links to, take Kenya, for example, it is being very badly affected by al-Shabaab. And that means it's less powerful as an ally to us. So even from a completely egocentric view, and I would take a much greater world view, but from a completely egocentric view of the UK, our allies are being tested by climate change, some of our allies. There's another aspect to it, which is that the response to climate change is bringing different tension. So as we're trying to move away from fossil fuels, which is exceptionally difficult, we're relying more on rare earths and, and critical minerals and so on which themselves become the subject of international and geopolitical competition. And that in itself becomes an issue for us, because we don't have any in this country, or we have very few in this country. And therefore, actually, if we're going to go green, which is the right thing to do in order to try and you know reduce emissions as a country, and I'm not talking about the military specifically, we are going to have to enter different relationships with different countries, with different parameters. And that leads to a potential for a security issue, if you like. And when I tell you that 80% of the world's lithium is processed in China, it gives you an indication of quite how, um, and I think 70% of the world's cobalt is, both of which are essential for renewable energy, is refined in China. And most of the cobalt mines are under the influence of China. That in itself leads to a security implication. So that's, that's the one side of it. The other side is we've got to fight in this stuff in a more difficult environment. We need to, to lay out to do that. And we need to adapt. Not just adaptation usually means putting up flood barriers to most people. That's what the sort of thing they associate in their mind. 
that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is ships that can operate in very high water temperatures. I'm talking about ships that can operate in the Arctic when the, the, the ice has melted, but it's freezing over in the winter. You get that sort of what's, what the Canadians call disruptive ice. I call sludge ice. It's that idea that, you know, you can't put a warship through that uh-huh. without damaging it unless you do something to the warship. And whether we want to put a warship there or not is is not the issue I'm talking about. The issue I'm talking about is can we? Can we physically do it? And if we genuinely believe that the security of the world is enhanced by free nations and free trade preserving that ability to operate anywhere in the world, then we need to be able to adapt to be able to operate anywhere in the world. So, so, so there's lots of ideas as to why we would want to pay attention to climate change. And as I say, it's not unique to the UK. Every military is being challenged. I, I talked to the chief of the defence staff of um, Australia, where he commented that for three years, his soldiers have been involved in the pandemic, followed by those terrible fires in Australia, followed by floods. Um, there was an article in New York just recently about local New York soldiers unable to exercise because of all the smoke that's coming from Canada. And therefore, they were less effective because they weren't able to go on exercise on their training areas, not least training areas are catching fire as well, occasionally. So, so you know, it just re- reduces our ability as a military to be effective. And, and there are lots and lots of examples of that. So there's lots of issues that militaries have to deal with. A classic example of Pakistan, a third of the country underwater, a lot of its military was involved in saving its people from being underwater. You know, this this is damaging in a sense to the military. Yeah. And then there's the competition that Kashmir is a really, really frightening example of because all the snow is melting, it offers greater opportunity for Pakistan and India to face off against each other in Kashmir. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that long ago that we had the first jet-to-jet combat in Kashmir and troops becoming, you know, you've got reasonably regular artillery being fired between the two sides up in Kashmir. That's becoming more possible. It's always been possible to a degree, but it's becoming more possible because the ice is melting and therefore it's a more benign environment to fight it. That's not good for us. And so that's why, if you like, I think that the world is waking up to the fact that climate change is what what many people will call a threat multiplier. It's another factor, but it's a it's an extenuating factor that leads to more difficult security environment. I don't think it's coincidence that William Hague, Lord Hague, gave a, a speech. He talks about the new norms, the new normal, and the new normal includes, and I don't think he was saying this just to the audience he was talking to. Um, he has 10 points, uh, one of which is disengaged from China. But one of his 10 points is you're going to have to double the defense budget because the world will be a more dangerous place. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know whether any government will accept that, given the cost of living crisis and all the rest of it. But the very point that he's saying, and he's a highly respected point he's saying it is, the world's becoming more dangerous, climate change is adding to the difficulty. That's, so in answer to your question, Tom, a very long answer, but that's why I'm interested in it. Because actually the world needs to understand this, and if you understand it, you can do something about it. If you don't understand it and you ignore it, which has been the case of most militaries most of the time, that this is nothing to do with us, then actually militaries become less effective. But more importantly, they sleepwalk into a more conflicted world. And that I don't think is in our interest or anybody else's. Listening from a non-military perspective, I guess as a British citizen who's not necessarily part of the kind of military establishment, what should we be most concerned about from your report? 
there are two issues. One is trade. We're one of the world's leading trading nations. That's reflected in our massive imports, but we used to be a trading nation that had masses of exports as well. That seems to have fallen apart a bit, but, <laughs> but we're a trading nation. And we need to understand that that trade is going to be affected by climate change. I don't know how that's going to be affected necessarily. It, um, some of it could be very positive, but some of it could be uh, much more negative. So I'll, I'll give you just one tiny word. Two examples. One, which is directly UK, which we suffered, and I'm not going to talk about energy. Energy is an obvious one that if we're reliant on somebody else's energy, when we could have our own energy and renewables, uh, then we're reliant on somebody else's price point. The cost of living crisis is a direct result of a combination of climate change, Russia being incredibly clever at weaponizing energy, and us trying to survive without any decent reserves. Now, all of that, you could say, has nothing to do with climate change. But what climate change, the response to climate change has offered us is an opportunity to do something completely different, which is to become independent for our energy in the way that America has. And if we don't take that, then we're always going to be subject to somebody else's price point. And that brings down governments. It brought down governments in the 1970s. It's killed this government to a very large extent because of the cost of living crisis. That's an issue. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about trade. Give me just one example. At the beginning of the year, we ran out of tomatoes in the country. Now, you could say, well, we can live without tomatoes. Yes, we can. We can live without avocados. We can live without bananas. We can live without all sorts of things because most of most of our food like that is imported. You've got the minister, I think, incredibly foolishly saying, eat turnips. I mean, how, how unbelievably stupid is that? Because it's disappeared out of our diet and therefore you're asking people to eat something that most people won't eat. The sentiment was right, which was eat seasonal food. <laughs> uh, the way she said it was so cack-handed that, well, uh, it's, it's not for me to say, but directly stupid. Point about tomatoes is a lot of people blame the supermarkets for making it not worth our while to grow tomatoes in this country because the supermarkets demand such cheap price. That's not the story. The story is the reason they can afford to do that is because they import tomatoes from southern Spain. Southern Spain has been hit by the most extraordinary three years of drought, which meant that the tomato crop failed. So climate change directly affected our ability to have tomato because we hadn't grown them ourselves. We're less self-sufficient because we're a trading nation and we don't mind having exports from across the world. But if those exports are going to fail because of climate change, then we will not be able to have tomatoes. Another example is grain. The combination of the Canadian heat dome, a difficult environment in South America, but not impossible, and the Ukrainian war, which you can't blame on climate change at all, but the combination of the three has made grain very much more expensive in the world. Now, we as a trading nation and as still, despite what the Telegraph said yesterday, still a very wealthy nation, we can afford this, but it will just mean more expensive food. But if it comes to us affording it at the expense of people dying in Africa, I wonder what our people will think. It's an interesting question. We have a very high threshold for rioting in this country, unlike France. And it is a genuine difference. We don't riot in this country. It takes an extraordinary amount for us to riot. In France, it seems to take somebody just saying not. <laughs> but, but, but you cannot predict what a doubling of food prices or more will do to our people who are already suffering a cost of living crisis because we have not invested in energy. Therefore, we're paying over the odds for our energy as well. And 
the combination of uh, more energy and oh, by the way everybody's saying we should pay more for water so that we can um, solve the crisis in our rivers and so on and as somebody who can afford it i would say absolutely we should pay more for water it's ridiculous how little we pay for our water but the reality is for some people that's impossible so this combination of stuff is going to be really really difficult so that's one side it's trade things are going to become more expensive we are going to become poorer if we don't do something about it so from what you're saying, the logic tells me we need to become more self-sufficient as a nation in order to mitigate the risk of these fluctuations and stabilize the country. But in itself, is that going to be a multiplying factor to the risk of more instability on the global scale? Because trade is good for linking everyone together to say, look, we're in this together, guys. But as soon as we stop thinking about trading internationally and start thinking, looking internally, is there a risk that then there's increased risk of conflict? We haven't been self-sufficient in food in this country since, what, the 17th century, 18th century, something like that. Even when we turned every available plot of land to food production in the Second World War, we weren't self-sufficient on food. Right. Um, and the Churchill famously said that if we hadn't won the Battle of the Atlantic, at one point we would add to three weeks' worth of food. We had to win the Battle of the Atlantic. We had to defeat the U-boats because otherwise we would starve. And so even when we tried our absolute hardest, we are not self-sufficient in food. And so we're always going to be reliant on trade. So this is not about absolutes. And it's too easy to think of it in absolutes. Yeah, it, it's, a, it, it's about relatives. The relativity of cost of food, the relativity of the availability of certain food, that becomes important. And it's how much can the country cope with? If you look at energy, though... Just as an example, you know, the 1970s, OPEC brought the government down. OPEC caused, in a sense, the decade of disaster that the 1970s was, in my view. You know, the three-day working week, the massive unionization. The country just ceased to really operate. We got bailed out by the IMF. A lot of it was down to OPEC raising the prices of, of oil. There's all sorts of other reasons we didn't go into Vietnam and America pulled the plug on our currency and so on. There are other reasons, but a lot of it was down to the cost of oil. So we were utterly dependent on somebody else. Now, you could say that was really good because we had trade with the Middle East, and that trade meant that we didn't go to war with the Middle East. Well, that didn't work out, did it? So, and you look now at the relationship between America and Saudi Arabia when America is no longer dependent on oil, you could turn around and say that would be less peaceful. I don't yeah. know. I think judgment's yeah. on that. So I don't think it's a, it's a given that more trade equals peace. Actually, if you provide tension into a trade in environment, I think that's tension into an environment full stop, and therefore that may or may not lead to conflict. And I suppose this is following on from our prep call where we talked about Germany and, and Russia and, and try to forge that closer link with Russia in terms of becoming dependent on their oil, and that didn't stop what's happened either, so yeah. No, I, I think it's a brilliant example of the West really trying to do the right thing, but if you come up against a maverick yeah. who wants to take advantage of you, it's that great book right at the beginning of his career by Richard Dawkins, where he talked about, if we're all doves, that's fantastic. Put one hawk amongst the doves, and the doves tend to come off worse. Yeah, All you need is one hawk. And that's what Putin was. He was the hawk. When we were trying to be doves to try and encourage trade with Russia, to try and bring normalisation of relationships and, and Putin took advantage of it. Thank you. I was really interested by your point, Richard, around the connection between 
kind of, I guess, thinking about it from a kind of everyday perspective that, you know, inavailability of tomatoes, the cost of tomatoes, the impact that's going to have on, you know, I guess, perpetuating the cost of living crisis if we're going to look in a, an increase in food pricing. But I suppose what I find interesting is that that narrative, we're not really connecting that with climate change, I don't think. I'm not hearing that connection between cost of living crisis and climate change being an impact, kind of a connection between the two. And I, I guess I'm curious about why that isn't the case, because what we're hearing actually is government stepping away from climate related policy because it doesn't feel to be a vote winner. And they're saying we need to privilege cost of living. But actually, if you're looking at these as completely interrelated, then I'm, I suppose I'm curious about that story. Um, so I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is it is too easy to blame climate change for everything. Hard-nosed environmentalists will blame climate change for absolutely everything. Climate change is a contributory factor. It makes the world more difficult. It makes the world impossible if you happen to be in an environment where actually your heat is impossible to live in. But for this country, it just feels a bit too much like hyperbole to say it's all down to climate change. And the problem is, and I think this is a huge problem, is, is the nuanced debate which says climate change is a contributory factor. Climate change, you know, it, it wasn't directly climate change that meant that we ran out of tomatoes. I would argue it was directly responsible for really damaging the Spanish tomato industry. And by the way, we import from Spain. We could have imported from Mexico or somewhere else. I don't know, somewhere else that grows tomatoes, but we chose not to. So it's very easy to argue that actually it was nothing to do with that. It was due to the fact that one of our trade routes failed for whatever reason, and that therefore we should have had more um, expansive trade routes. And it was all actually down to the supermarkets, wasn't it? Which was the narrative. The supermarkets had, had priced farmers out of creating tomatoes in this country. It's always easier to blame somebody than something. And so you get a narrative which is like that rather than a narrative which links it all back to the massive drought in Spain and southern Europe that they've had for three years, which has meant that consistently the crops have failed. And of course, that's a nuance as well, because not all the crops have failed and not everything has gone wrong. It's just that that, is, that was the pressure point that we saw. Um, and it didn't fail for that long. And climate change seems to, you know, it's really difficult to box it and say it's all down to climate change. And it's very dangerous to say it's all down to climate change. Very dangerous. It is a contributory factor. And I think that's why you're not getting that narrative. As to why the government's stepping away from it, interestingly, there was, a, there was an article this morning, I think, or yesterday, saying 70 to 80% of the country still believe climate change is a major issue. What that shows is that the Uxbridge by-election, it was about how awful ULES is, because it's unfair this is the narrative. I don't know enough about it to know whether this is right or not. But that ULES itself is unfair, and that's why people voted against it, not that they're voting against climate change. And the Conservative Party have taken it to... I'm oh, sorry, I'm getting very political. But it's easy to turn around and say, well, they've dis uh, it's all about climate change, and therefore we'll turn away from climate change. When I actually know it was a specific hated policy, which most people really didn't want, that they voted against. It's too easy to use climate change as a punchback which means that it's really difficult to distinguish what's actually happening and what, therefore, the potential threats are in the future. This isn't really a question, more of a reflection, but I guess it's just about how do you, how do we hold all this complexity yet still tell a helpful story that can help us move forward? Um, because I guess as soon as we get to reduct a reductionist point of it's all climate change's fault, and then that that's a limiting story, isn't it? Because it then it re reduces the complexity of the system. Yet we still then we left without a way of moving forward, which is what is the kind of challenge. 
I agree entirely. And I, I, I think that's why if we're going to tell this story that there are security implications of climate change, stand fast to the military side of it, which is, you know, militaries really need to understand this. The Defence Secretary turned around at COP26 and said, there are two sides to this kind. One side is we're going to have to pick up the pieces of a more violent world. It's going to be at the military who are asked to deal with that. And the other is that actually we're a, we're a net contributor of, of emissions and we should do something about that. That was his two sides of the same coin. So stand fast that, leave that to one side. That's a, it's a whole different subject and fascinating as to what the military can do about it. But that's not the key point. The key point is what effects, and this is the question I've been asking and trying to answer in ways that people are saying, what effect does climate change, does this security implication have on you and me in the street in the UK? Uh-huh. As they used to say, um, the man on the top of the Clapham omnibus. What effect does that have? And I think it's, in the UK particularly, it's really difficult to show the effect of climate change on this country because we're one of the luckiest countries in the world that we are one of the least affected. That's not to say we're not going to be affected, but we're one of the least affected. So we haven't had the massive floods that came down those huge rivers in Germany and, and Belgium. We haven't had a heat dome. We might have had a hot summer, but we haven't had a heat dome that has killed things. Of the supposedly 80,000 Europeans who were killed as a result of heat last year, I don't think, I don't know, but I doubt many of them were in the UK. I would expect the majority of them to have been in Southern Europe. And so we're insulated, wrong word, we're, we're insulated a little bit from the effects of climate change. So trying to bring it to life is much more difficult. You try to bring it to life to a Spaniard in Barcelona, it's really easy. Uh, you try bringing it to life to somebody in Newcastle who says I'm cold, it's really difficult. And therefore finding those answers, it is about food. It's about our ability to get food at a price that we accept. It's about our ability to overcome the cost of living crisis by having our own energy supply. And I'm really strongly believe in that. It's about our ability to have fresh drinking water. Water comes down at a different rate now. The reason we've got so many rivers and, and our seas that are discharging waste and everything is because the intensity of rainfall is such that our sewers and our ducts and all the rest of it can't cope. They were built for a different climatic environment. And whilst that, you could say that's letting the water industry off the hook, uh, I, I don't want to let the water industry off the hook at all. They've known this is coming and have done nothing about it. They should have made much, much, much bigger sewers as they're doing in London, the great London sewer, whatever it's called. The damage to people's lives of flooding enormous and the damage to our e economy is enormous as an example my son has a flat in shepherd's bush small basement flat flooded out completely uncharacteristically it, it had never flooded that street had never flooded before a very small basement flat sixty thousand pounds worth of damage which insurance companies pay he lost everything and he lived for six months um, all over the place just to try and um, to live somewhere else while his flat was dried out and completely cleared. That's one tiny flat. There were 17 flats, basement flats in that street that were flooded. This is enormous amounts of money that we're wasting, that's costing us more because of insurance and all the rest of it, that we're wasting because we're not paying attention to 
the implications of climate change on, our, on how water comes down from the sky anymore. You know, it is different. This is real to people because it means your insurance premiums go up and all the rest of it. It makes them poorer. That's the sort of message we need to get across mm. rather than saying, oh, it's climate change and it's a big thing. No, it's direct impact. And that's the only way you can do it in this country, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I guess it's sad, but a reality is not of the human condition that we need to think about what is the impact going to be on us directly. And actually, in a way, we kind of need to suffer a little bit in order to generate the motivation to do things differently, because that feels uncomfortable to step into change. The reality is we're all altruistic until we're not. <laughs> and everybody likes to think that they would like to save the world. But the reality is, as has been shown in countless things, if it costs a little bit more to do so, there are not many of us who will spend that extra cost. Sadly. But that's human nature. No, we shouldn't be sad about it. That's human nature. And therefore, we have to work with it. As opposed to just say, oh, isn't that terrible? We should work with it. We should work with that human nature and say we should highlight where things are going to directly affect people. And say, actually, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't. Or this has happened to other people who you might know. So talking about uncomfortable conversations, but I think we need, we need to touch upon, it is the border security migration effects of climate change. And, and I know you're about to go on to that, but what, what's your reflections on that? Movement of peoples has been an adaptation policy that humans have had throughout our history. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually um, civilizations moved when the world changed around them for whatever reason. The one we're most used to in 20th and 21st centuries is conflict. And people move to get away from conflict. And you only need to look at the refugees from Syria, the Syrian war, or much more recently, the refugees from the Ukrainian war. And we have accepted, I think, I think it's a sizable number of people from Ukraine have come to live in this country that we have accepted and are, li uh, and are living in our houses. I mean, it, it, that's almost unheard of. In fact, it's exactly the same as we did for the Belgians in the First World War. The people came and lived in houses and we took in a lot of Belgians. And we've done a lot of that in our history. But it's a, it's, it is a common historical thing to do. So we shouldn't be the least bit surprised that if the environment becomes too difficult to live in, whether it's through conflict or whether it's through something else, people will move. That should not be a surprise. And it's the weft and flow of, of civilizations. You know, it's the wonderful fact that despite the fact that there weren't any Neanderthals in, uh, and I'm literally going back tens of thousands of years uh, at least, but despite the fact that there's no evidence of any Neanderthals in the UK at all, most of us have 2% Neanderthal in us, um, if you do our genetics. This is absolutely normal. People move. What is different about climate change? What is different about what is happening this time is, yes, people are moving as a result of war, but when you move as a result of war, as a result of conflict, your whole, you are forced out, and you're forced out, and you've usually left something behind, whether it's property or whether it's wealth or whatever, and you have every desire to go back to where you came from, and you have every intent to go back the moment the war's finished, and so you get a, you get a reverse movement back. The Ukrainians I speak to are all desperate to go back to Ukraine as soon as it's safe. They don't want to stay in, some want to stay in this country, but the majority don't. We're actually quite different culturally. Climate change has a different effect. If you are eking out a living in a very difficult environment, you will continue to eke out that living believing it might get better for as long as you possibly can, because you've got nothing to go to, to take away. You can never go back, because if it has become too difficult to live, it's become too difficult to live. But more worryingly is... You don't leave with wealth. You leave incredibly poor because you've used every last effort of your 
of your wealth and of your property and everything to try and survive at home. And now you can't because climate change has made it too difficult to live there. So you leave with absolutely no intent of going back or no ability to go back. That's a much, much, much more difficult proposition. It's a more difficult proposition because those who accept you, and, and, and the sad fact is there's almost nowhere in the world where nobody's living. So you're, you're immediately impacting on somebody else's life as you move. We will happily take the number of refugees we've taken from Ukraine because in the bottom of our mind, we know that they're going to go home. And we're not extending a 100, 200, 500 year invitation. This is why migration is such a political hot potato, because those who come as migrants to any country are coming to stay. And they can change the culture and change the environment, um, uh, change the, the living of, of where you come from. And so climate change refugees, climate change displaced peoples are much, much, much more vulnerable, but also much more difficult to deal with. Because no country can turn around and say, oh, well, of course, you can go back when it's all okay. Because it ain't going to be okay. You can find statistics to back up anything. And the World Bank has said there'll be a billion climate change displaced people by 2050. The UN would say that 90% of those will stay in the region in which they come from. So you're talking about 100 million, perhaps. The reality on the ground appears to be, from the statistics I've seen, that about 20% move rather than 10%. So you're talking about 200 million people wanting to come to a different part of the world. Where are they going to go? Well, everywhere, of course. But if you were faced with that choice, where would you go? You'd go somewhere that's least affected by climate change, so you're not going to be kicked out yet again. You're not going to go five miles up the road where in 10 years' time you'll have to move from there, and five miles up the road in 10 years' time you'll have to move from there. That is what happened in our history. I love history, so forgive me, but the Sumerians, as the gulf filled up with water, because it was a desert, as the gulf filled up with the water, the Sumerians were forced from sort of Oman into Iraq, just going up as the, as the gulf filled up. It took a century or two. So they moved. But if I was somebody in Africa, I'd want to move to where I think I would be safe. Where's that? That's Northern Europe and it's North America because we're the least affected. So you're likely to see at least a proportion coming here, coming to Europe, first of all, and then Northern Europe. And the numbers are horrendous. Even if 10% of that 10% decided to come to Europe, that's 10 million refugees wanting to come to Europe. One million Syrian refugees had an effect on uh, European politics. And so I think that there's, you know, we've got to be absolutely alive to this. We've got to understand it. And we've got to come up with a policy. I don't know what that policy is. There's an Australian academic who's been discredited because he said, shoot them in the oceans. Don't let them land. And he's been discredited because actually that is so anti our moral and ethical stance. But he said, you won't shoot them now, but in 20 years' time, you'll be shooting them. Now, I, that's, I just can't see us doing that. No. I really can't see us doing that. But how do you cope with, let's just say for sake of argument, 10 million refugees wanting to come to Europe? And most of them wanting to go to Northern Europe, because that's the safest place for me. How do we cope with that? By not addressing the problem directly, by not understanding the problem, by not working out what we can do about it. We're just letting ourselves be lost to something that we haven't controlled and haven't got a policy on. That is the danger. 
and even Al, you know Al Gore, who's who has made a point of talking about these refugees, said I don't agree with his figures, but he said some two hundred million will come to North America. The population of North America is only three hundred sixty million. You put two hundred million refugees into North America from climate affected parts of the world and say I don't agree with his figures, but if you do that, you know you are not only expanding America by another 30-40%, but it's a 30-40% cultural shock to the way that America works today. And he has turned around and said, I'm massively in favour of migration and of, of accepting refugees, but not at that level. Not at that level. This is a problem. We need to understand it. And I don't think it's at all a coincidence that the EU have just had an agreement with North Africa, with um, one of the North African countries, and I can't remember which one it is, forgive me, literally last week or earlier this week, um, where they're spending billions to try and encourage people to stay in Africa rather than come across the Mediterranean. This is the sort of proactive policy that the EU is taking. Whether you believe in this or not, at least they're thinking about it. It's the sort of proactive policy that we should be doing as well. I want to provide a, a a strong reflection on that, but it's, a, it's I think you've covered it extremely well, and I I certainly don't have any solutions, but I'm glad someone's saying it, and I'm hoping that that, that and that's the whole point of this episode. We're trying to stimulate thought in order to educate people and help them come up with their own decisions and be aware of, what, of what's coming down the track. The thing I'm really curious about, Richard, is about what impact you think that report has had on government policy or on any outcome. Yeah, I guess I'm curious about the impacts of that. What sounds like a fantastic piece of work. So I would say that the original report, if I was writing it now, would be a hell of a lot better. <laughs> but I loathe writing reports. And so I, I, I promise I'd do it, but I never, ever want to do another one. <laughs> but it would be better next time around, I think. What impact has it had? I think the fence is taking it quite seriously, um, which is a good thing. I mean, inevitably, the accusation is we're talking about electric tanks and, and things like that. And people will always look for the absurd to ridicule a, an approach. You've experienced that as well. And so I'm not talking about electric tanks. Electric tank, a 70-ton electric tank is a non-starter at the moment with current technology and, and future technology physics just doesn't work at the moment. So I think the report has had an impact. It has now led to a all-party parliamentary group on climate and security. It's led to climate and security, and not directly, but it's a contributory element, climate and security being talked about in COP26 for the first time ever and being a major part of COP28. And in fact, I've been invited to go and see the COP president in October, just before COP, to talk about it. And there's, there's going to be a pavilion which is talking all about the Munich Security Conference has got a pavilion in COP. And whatever you think of COP, it is the only show in town at the moment. And if you didn't have that, it would be even worse. So the very fact that Munich Security Conference have a pavilion, uh, which has been accepted, the fact that we're talking about security at COP is a very good thing. And my report is part of a panoply. It helps that it's in English. As I love to say, English is the lingua franca of climate change, and so it is having a bigger impact as a result. But it's also having an impact on other countries. I was speaking to the German Bundestag. I'm, I'm speaking at a major conference in Saudi Arabia in February. I'm going out to Australia next month. I've spoken to America and various parts of the Pentagon. In other words, I think what, uh, slightly embarrassingly, has been recognised is that is that that report was more strategic than most countries are thinking about and most militaries are thinking about. And therefore, whilst we may not be the best at producing hydrogen vehicles or electric vehicles or whatever it is, some, some other militaries are further ahead than us, particularly Holland. The very strategic thinking, um, and I've, I've spent most of my life trying to think strategically, the very strategic thinking is something that is new to most people and is interesting. 
and trying to bring the totality of what this means rather than just. So I think it's had an impact. It still seems to be quoted quite a lot, which is quite good by other countries. The US National Intelligence Estimate last year quoted three documents as its source, and it was one of them, which I think is quite helpful. I think you're being very humble there. I mean, it's I've found, and I feel really optimistic to hear about those impacts and the how and the weight that the report is having because I can really hear the the strategy and you're thinking throughout the conversation. And but I guess a final question for me is: I was struck right at the beginning. You said that nobody was talking about climate change or sustainability as part of the kind of committee you were a, a part of. And I guess what I'm interested in: what took you personally into this space? Like, why are you flying the flag for these issues within a military perspective? Um. Two reasons. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of reflecting on this because I'm asked this question quite often. First is um, I read anthropology at university. And anthropology is, um, and the bit I was particularly interested in is not the sort of kinship groups and everything. That was jolly useful when I was out in Afghanistan. And actually, I um, introduced some anthropologists out to Afghanistan to advise us when I was in Kabul. But the bit I was really interested in is we have evolved because of the environment we were operating in. So the environment shaped humans. Now humans are shaping the environment. It's the, it's, the, it's the flip side of the coin, and I find, and therefore it's a very, very similar track. Um, so I've always been interested, ever since university, I've been fascinated by how we are affected by climate and environment, and, and, and now vice versa. And of course, uh, the environment is now in fact affecting us in a completely different way. So there's that side of it. But the direct piece was that I've been interested because actually I think that I was incredibly depressed by the, um, I, I never get depressed, but I'm an optimist by nature, but really disappointed by the narrative. The narrative was the world, you know, we're all going to die type narrative. And I'm an optimist. And I genuinely don't believe that. I genuinely think we will find a way through this. It'll be more painful, but we'll find a way through this. And there will be the sunlit uplands. I have to believe in that. I'm an optimist. The word that I used with the military more than anything was opportunity. What are the opportunities that this presents? And so I felt really strongly that defence was missing an opportunity. And I, I spent nearly 40 years in defence. And so, um, well, actually 42 years. So, so defence matters to me. And so actually, uh, widely, the army particularly in, in some respects. So actually, by them missing an opportunity, we were just, we were just being stupid. And I don't like defence being stupid. So I wanted to... I wanted to offer them something which said, no, there's massive opportunity here. And just take the politics out of it. Take that sort of tree-hugging, it's all lefto pinko tree-hugging rubbish out of it and look at what are the opportunities for innovation? What are the opportunities for technology? What are the opportunities for building greater alliances with different countries? What are the opportunities that present themselves as a result of the world's impact of climate change? And that became really important to me fascinated by the subject, want to do my bit, but actually want the fence to take the opportunity. Wonderful. I think that's a superb place to close this, this interview down. Thank you again, Richard, for giving us your time and your wisdom. Is there anything you'd like to say, to, any kind of final thoughts? I suppose very conscious of, of, of what you're doing. Um, it is too easy so I used, uh, um, uh, and, and, and this is a real danger, and I've been massively criticised for it. I used the words climate change and sustainability. But out of that, I also include biodiversity. I also include natural capital. I also include that actually we had got to do an awful lot of repairing of this country particularly, but of the world. And I've planted over a thousand trees in my garden, so to speak. I feel really strongly that we've got to do it all. 
but I've characterized it as climate change and sustainability because it resonates in a military context. So I would just say, you know, it, it's not just climate. It's not just sustainability. It's biodiversity. It's pollution of our rivers and of our seas. It's the very worrying factor that we're all apparently now breathing in microplastics and microplastics are a vehicle for pathogens to enter the body in more more numbers. So that's one of the reasons they think that the pandemic was so damaging. One of the reasons they think that we're getting much bigger incidences of cancer now is because carcinogens are being brought in through microplastics. It's things like that which we need to be aware of as well, rather than just blaming everything on climate change. We need to do a lot of repairing. And I would encourage everybody to try and think about that as well as but this is overwhelming to almost everybody. And we need to pick our battles. I mean, that's it. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing version two of the report at some point in the future. <laughs> You'll be waiting a very long time. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Tom. That was your amazing guest and I stole all the questions. Yeah, you, you did a little bit, but... I thought it was great. I mean, that's exactly the reason why we get these guests on. It's because we want people who are outside of the military sphere or any sphere to learn something, which obviously, hopefully you did learn something. Yeah, there were some really interesting points, I thought. Um, some of which I guess I'd considered before, but I hadn't properly kind of explored in the way that the, the gen introduced them. And and for, for me, the kind of one thing that really stood out is his point around the kind of tension between relying on ourselves as a nation, being kind of energy independent, you know, growing our own food, talk, talking about some of these challenges. I can really understand what he was saying there. For me, there's an obvious tension there. This feels like a global problem where we need a global solution. And then that's where I think about kind of collaboration and then coming together. And, it, and I'm just, how do we hold that kind of dialectic, I suppose? Well, that's where he said, there's no absolutes in this. And, and then he went on to talk about the fact that, you know, the UK as a nation hasn't fed itself since the 1700s, which is interesting because then that's counter to conversation we've been having earlier with other guests where we talk about how they've calculated how much land use is required to feed ourselves as a nation and it's actually less land than, than we are currently using so it's all a bit confusing yeah that that point really connects for me as well tom because i think i think at some point in the interview richard said if you understand something you can do something about it which is you know obviously a fairly fundamental obvious point i actually feel like there's so much i don't understand about what personal choices i should be making in order to minimize my kind of climate impact and even which policies we should be supporting from a government level is it better to eat avocados that have been flown in from brazil or is it better to eat the lamb cutlet that's been hand reared on the farm next door to us uh, and i feel like something that's really lacking in this space is a kind of reliable source of information i guess because as richard also i think said you can put statistics wherever you want in whatever, whatever direction you want and without that data there's just so much subjectivity in the space and then it's easy to get into kind of emotive arguments yeah one of the other key takeaways for me and what i'm going to try and do throughout the series of wilder podcasts is ask the uncomfortable questions and one of the ones one of the discussions we had with richard was the migration question i think he raised some really good points very uncomfortable points what are we going to do when these migrants start coming our way how are we going to deal with them but now is the time to have the conversation so it's not as emotive or at least emotive as it possibly can be but come up with appropriate responses to it and stick to them when it starts to happen because we believe he believes scientists believes it is going to happen and what role do we have in, as individuals in that process is that us kind of connecting with kind of wider social movements that might be 
contributing to the conversation around some of these issues? Is that about writing to your MP and expressing your concern? What role do we have in trying to address some of these challenges? Don't ask me hard questions. I don't know the answers to, Chloe. Um, it's hard, but as we've said so far in this, this series, it's about starting a discussion, debate, educating yourself. But yes, I would say let politicians know that the environment, climate change, migration, all of these things are things that voters care about and want to discuss. And I think as just a final point for me, which you've already touched on, I really loved his kind of perspective on it's about relatives, not absolutes, because I think as soon as we step into kind of absolutes, we step into a position of blame. And then as soon as we step into blame, we invite emotion and then we lose our ability to actually think collaboratively and rationally about solutions to complex problems. So I think as soon as, and I really, well, your point there about actually we need to be having the conversations now before the problem is pressing upon us, I think is a really valid one because of those reasons. But relatives are confusing and complicated and very hard to hold into my brain for any long period of time. Sadly, yes. And maybe that goes back to the point around education. We need to simplify these ideas so that we, from the complexity, we can bring clarity that can then help us to have these informed conversations. Mm. Right. I think that's enough of us withering on. Hopefully you found that all of these episodes really useful. One thing I want to ask from you, the listener, if you have found them valuable and useful and entertaining and engaging and informative, then biggest thing you can do now if you want to support us is go to wherever you rate, review your podcast and leave us a rate and review. That will basically magnify the reach of the podcast. And I hope you'll agree we want people to talk about these topics. I think it's been so great to set the foundations for these first three episodes on a very kind of big picture level. And what I'm also equally excited about is we're about to step into some episodes where we're thinking much more about biodiversity, about nature, about hearing about other people's projects that have used rewilding concepts. And perhaps it feels a little bit more tangible, maybe because there's a bit of a rest after some of these big complex issues. Yeah. And the guests are magnificent. Right. I think Eleanor has passed a sell-by date, so we'll move on to that. If you want to follow us on Instagram, go to Grange.project and on Facebook, look for Grange Project. And we'll see you in episode four. Bye-bye.